The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Climate Papers with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Elisa Gilbert from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. This podcast series brings together the best minds in the country to discuss the most important issues in the lead up to COP26. Elisa, I'm tempted to make a really bad joke here about rocket science, but we really are looking at space and more specifically satellites in space and their role in understanding climate change, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And that's nice because we know lots of people are interested in space anyway. So it's bringing that to uh, one of people's favourite subjects. But it's really might surprise some people how relevant this topic is to tackling climate change and understanding climate change as well. Yeah, and I was absolutely fascinated to read the the most recent briefing that we're discussing today, because I have to say I knew very little about this and it's, I found it hugely informative and I'm really looking forward to talking to our two guests. So I'd like to welcome our guest, Jonathan Bamber, who's a professor in glaciology at the University of Bristol, and he's a lead author on the briefing. Jonathan, welcome and thanks for joining us. Hi, yeah, pleased to be here. And our second guest, Marion Scott, who's a professor in environmental statistics at the University of Glasgow. And she's also a co-author on the briefing paper. Marion, hello and welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I guess we should start probably with a little bit of explanation for those who've joined this subject as I did, knowing absolutely nothing. So Jonathan, I know this probably could take up the entire podcast, but in a in as short a manner as you can to make it sensible, can you explain to us what do we mean by Earth observation? What is it? Yeah, of course, the words themselves are very simple, but actually it encompasses quite a sort of complex idea or set of concepts uh, because Earth observation is just making observations of the surface, subsurface of the Earth or even the atmosphere. So all components, you know, we're talking about the oceans, the biosphere, um, ecosystems, any part of the Earth system. And I mean, uh, in in terms of the, the briefing document that we wrote, we focus primarily on satellite observations of the Earth because they they cover most of the surface of the Earth. They're very extensive. They you, you know you get a lot of detailed information. But Earth observation also includes airborne and terrestrial observations. Anything that is uh, making an observation of a process on the surface of the Earth that's not in direct contact with it. So you're not, you know, measuring, I don't know, the height of a river with a, you know, a rod or something. That, that's a that's an earth observation. But generally speaking, when scientists are referring to it, they're, they're talking about large scale observations of larger areas, you know, let's say the whole of the oceans or the whole of the continent, something like that, uh, from uh, airborne or satellite platform. And we've been doing it for quite a while, haven't we? I mean, it's not, this isn't a, a new development. This, we've, we've been making these kind of observations for, for, for decades now. Well, I, I, I mean, it depends how much of a historical context you want here. I mean, during the First World War, there were constant surveys, you know, with, with people taking photographs from aeroplanes. That is a form of Earth observation. But from space, um, it's really started probably in the late 60s. So, you know, on the order of 50 years, and, and we do have, um, that's, that's, you know, that's a, a decent length record of the changing properties of, of the Earth, the atmosphere, and all, all its components. So why is it so important in the context of climate change and tackling climate change and, and, and helping countries to get themselves to a place where they're acting properly and in, around the issue of climate change and Earth heating? Earth observation data really provides us, if you like, if you like, a health check on all aspects of pro- 
processes that are taking place on the surface of the earth and in the atmosphere. So for example, we can we can measure uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere from space. We can look at how they're changing over time, how they're changing in space. We can do the same with things like um, surface temperature and climate. You know, we can look at weather systems, the intensity of those, how they're changing over time. And that basically tells us, you know, how is the climate system and all the components, including things like vegetation cover, um, bio, what's called biomass, you know, the total amount of vegetation on the surface, how is that changing? in response to climate forcing, in response, for example, to human-induced climate forcing. And without that information, you know, it's, you're, you're kind of shooting in the dark, really. So, so you know, it's, it's fundamental to our understanding of what's happening in the Earth system and how it's responding to different types of forcing. I can see, and I can be a really stupid question here, but I can see how, you know, from a satellite, you could take a pictorial record. So you could actually photograph the changing size of lakes. And Mary and I were talking briefly about the fact that, that lakes have changed and she's got many lakes in the study she's been looking at. I can see how you could do that. How can you assess gases from a satellite? How does that work? Well, OK, so I don't want to get kind of too technical, no, sorry, um, I don't want you to get too technical. I just but, need to but, get my head um, around this. These, these, <laughs> um, I mean, it is rocket science, literally. So Good. <laughs> you know, it is quite quite involved. And these these satellites are measuring different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So they can measure, they can make measurements in the microwave part of the spectrum. And if you use different frequencies or different wavelengths in the microwave, you can actually measure different properties of the atmosphere or the, the surface of the ocean or even subsurface processes. So there are satellites up there that can measure things like soil moisture wow. or, or temperature below the surface of, of snow, for example, or, or, or snow, what's called snow water equivalent and snow depth. Um, so, uh, and it's because they're using different, different wavelengths and different frequencies and even um, what's called different polarizations of EM radiation, electromagnetic radiation. So, you know, they're really sophisticated instruments. One of, one of the instruments I've worked with um, um, a lot over the years is something called the satellite radar altimeter. Now, it's flying at an altitude of about a thousand kilometers. In old money, that's, you know, 650 miles above the surface of the Earth. It's going at a, a speed of about seven kilometers a second, and it's measuring changes in sea surface height with an accuracy of a few millimeters using using microwave signals and you know it it is it, it is just incredible i mean the engineering the technology and the, the ingenuity is absolutely incredible there's another satellite very briefly that measures changes in the gravity field of the earth which gives you information about how mass is being redistributed let's say water is flowing from land into the oceans for example it's called the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment, GRACE. And it's two satellites flying in tandem, separated by a distance of about 200 kilometers in space, with a microwave ranger between the two satellites that can measure changes in the separation of those two satellites to the width of a human hair. Okay. I'm pretty impressed now. I'm just going to, you know, that's it. I'm going to stop. I it want takes to a lot ask... to make Amanda speechless. So that was quite yeah, impressive. I'm completely speechless. <laughs> Marion, I am just 
in awe of you because I imagine that this that what's coming from these satellites is a huge amount of data that you are then able to interpret. Tell, tell us it, how it, you do it, that and what, what does that actually mean for, for us as lay people? So, I mean, I think probably it's easiest to, as, a, as we were mentioning earlier, to use an example to perhaps explain um, the process. Uh, and I mentioned a, a project that I was involved in called Global Lakes, where we were looking at 1,000 lakes globally and trying to assess the water quality. So you could imagine typically what would have to happen is someone would have to go to each of those lakes. Someone would possibly have to take a boat and various pieces of equipment and collect some samples of water and so on and bring that back to understand um, what was happening within the lake. Uh, and, you know, throwing a bucket into a lake um, gives you an observation which is basically very, very contained in terms of it's one part of the lake and so on. But with the, the satellite um, data that we've been able to access, um, what we can do is we can effectively produce, if you like, a snapshot of the lake or the 1,000 lakes every time that the satellite goes over. Um, and an image for one of the lakes, you know, for instance, um, for one of the Great Lakes in the US, a picture would be something like more than three and a half million pixels, which are little squares that make up the total image. And that's just one example. And this is older satellite technology. This is not the newest satellite technology. So you could imagine that if this satellite is passing over the lake, let's say every month, and we have um, a passover, let's say for 20 years, then it soon really begins to accumulate in terms of um, the data that we have available. So what we've been doing in our projects has been developing statistical ways of summarizing each image and then looking at the patterns of those images and how they might change over time. And we can also look at all of the, let's say, 1,000 lakes and see which ones seem to be behaving similarly and which ones look very different. And that gives us some insight um, into changes. And also, as I said, what we've tried to do is link some of those changes to perhaps some potential drivers like urbanization or what's happening within the catchment of the lake and so on. So it does require a lot of processing for sure, um, but it brings a richness, which as I said, historically, we might only have had a few observations from each lake, if indeed we even had any observations from some of the lakes within our set. I guess the great advantage of, of the satellite over the, the the person in the boat with the bucket is that you can get to some of those really inaccessible lakes on a regular basis. And we can track, as you've said, over a period of time, just what is happening in terms of the impact of climate change. You can indeed. But I think I would like to kind of caveat that comment with you can't do this without having people going to lakes and collecting samples. We have to have a combination, um, a satellite observation on its own without the technical term would be calibration to the ecological quantity that we're interested in because Jonathan mentioned that the instruments and the satellites are looking at a, the electromagnetic spectrum, for instance. So they, they, these measurements have to be converted into ecologically meaningful variables in many cases. And to do that and to do that successfully, we still need high quality measurements being made in what might be considered older technology and often involving, you know, we talk about Wellington boots on the ground. <laughs> yeah, I can see that you would need that. So how does this relate to 
to the wider issue of climate change and the commitments that, that countries have signed up to under the Paris Agreement and that we hope we're going to be, you know, reinforcing at COP26 this year. So, so what is the relationship between the kind of work that you're doing around Earth observation and, and what we're seeking to do through the Paris Agreement and subsequent agreements? Well, I think Jonathan kind of said it in one of his earlier answers that effectively we, ha we have to have some sort of, I suppose it's, it's an accounting system. If we can't measure it, then we don't know what's changing. We don't know what's driving the changes. We're not able to, if you like, allocate, you know, the carbon budgets and the carbon targets that we have. So I, I really like, a, it's a very old quotation and, and it won't be fully correct because I can't remember precisely the words, but it's attributed to Lord Kelvin, who was one of the kind of founding fathers of modern day physics. And he, he basically said, if you can't measure it, then your science hasn't really reached the stage where you can begin to effectively make sense of the science. So that's really, I think, um, what the power of Earth observation in some respects has with respect to um, carbon commitments. It gives us another tool for actually quantifying what you know, carbon budgets there are um, and what they're changing. But I'm sure Jonathan will be able to also say a bit more about that as well. Yes, um, in, 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 again, in the jargon, um, it's called uh, the global stock take. And as part of the Paris Agreement, uh, each, each country that signed up to it um, agreed to something called nationally determined contributions. Nationally determined contributions, yeah, NDCs. NDCs. Yeah. And most countries, you know, they, they produce a number. They say, OK, well, we, we, we have determined that we've emitted this amount of CO2 and actually we've sequestered this amount of CO2. You know, we've planted this many trees. Well, um, you know, you do need some way of verifying whether that's genuinely the case because there, there are, you know, economic consequences for doing it and not doing it and, and all sorts of other consequences. Um, you know, obviously there are serious consequences to the climate system as well. And um, Earth observation, you know, satellites are, are the most effective way for providing large-scale, what are called global synoptic observations, you know, timely observations over whole countries, over the whole of the Amazon forest. You know, there's still parts of the Amazon forest which, you know, perhaps no human foot has ever, you know, been on. It's, 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 a, it's a big place. There's a lot of forest and... Um, is, that in, is that verification independent, though? Because I'm thinking here about data and the ownership of data and the cost of satellites and I'm wondering who's controlling who's getting what data and how it's being used in a neutral way because the potential for excluding some countries that couldn't afford the data, for example, I would imagine is quite large, isn't it? So there are a, a lot of national satellite programmes there, so... Um, the US through NASA has, and, and actually what's called NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and also their defense agencies. They have a program called DMSP, the Defense Meteorological Satellite Program. They launch these satellites, and, and those data are, are generally made freely available to anyone who wants to use them. Even the DMSP series are made available once they're no longer of strategic relevance. And that's also true of the European Satellite Programme, um, coordinated by the European Space Agency. But then there are commercial programmes as well. And the commercial satellite programmes, which have grown very dramatically over the probably last decade to 15 years, those, you know, they're, they're, they're companies, they need to make money, so they sell their data generally. Mm. So there is, there is with, with those data sets, um, which 
generally speaking, aren't so relevant to things like the global stock, stock take, but are very useful for things like disaster management and for actually looking at some of the things that Marion was talking about, like urban changes in urban extent, then yeah, you may need to pay for those. I think the other side of that coin, the other, if you like, cost is you require quite sophisticated infrastructure to make full use of um, these really valuable data sources. And that can be both, um, if you like, physical infrastructure, but it's also people and people knowing how to manage and handle those data. And that's perhaps the other element um, that is a, is a challenge in this space. I think a really important point, these satellites are making some observation in, I don't know, let's say the microwave or, you know, the visible or whatever it is. Um, that's not the thing you're interested in. To convert it to the thing you're interested in is, is, requires quite a lot of complex processing, a deep understanding of the physics of the problem and so on and so on. And, um, you know, that knowledge and expertise is not equally distributed between nations. And then maybe I just a related question to that then. When, Marion, when you spoke about calibration and the fact that obviously you need some idea of the ecological condition that aligns with these physical or physics sort of measurements you're taking. Presumably that also means uh, you have to have the capacity to make those measurements in your own country as well. Now, yeah. And is that skill set developed in general together with the Earth observation or are they separate communities that then come together for the analysis? Quite separate communities often, um, you would say, because, you know, the, the environmental chemistry, you know, you can be an environmental chemist who can make very high quality, let's say, water quality measurements or air quality measurements, but you may know nothing about satellites or the instruments on satellites or indeed how to process the data. So we have to bring those together. And it requires, uh, as I said, you know, we need both things um, because the satellite data, while immensely valuable, without that translation into the ecologically interesting variables are something that, in a sense, we can't communicate uh, very easily what the outputs are. Um, you know, if you showed someone like my my sister, sorry, sorry, sister, um, if I showed you, a, a, you know, an image of um, a lake without this um, conversion or translation um, into the ecological meaningful variable, she'd be looking at it saying, well, what is this thing that you're measuring? Whereas if I say, well, it's temperature or if I explain chlorophyll or something like that, She's going to have a, a more innate appreciation of what it is we're interested in. Is there a problem, Marion, without the either of the resources in terms of the, the other scientists we need to interpret the data? Or is there a problem to do with the way countries or, or departments or faculties or whatever are working together? Well, I, I mean, I think, as Jonathan has indicated, there is huge collaboration around the world in this space. But... From the point of view of a wider user community, there probably is additional needs in terms of training more and more people. Uh, now, you mentioned I'm a statistician, so I do data analytics, and almost everyone will have heard about you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and learning about patterns. These are all very skilled, if you like, tools to allow us to, to interpret and interrogate these very rich data sources. Um, and there's a shortage of, of skilled people, and not just simply in the developing world, but also in the developed world, but probably more so in the developing world. Yeah, and that's where that issue, I guess, of, of full access to information in order to make sensible decisions for your 
immediate community or country or the community you live in is quite important, isn't it? Because you can't make decisions without the information. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to ask the opposite kind of question. So we've been talking about access uh, to the information for all of the individual, importantly, parts to the, to the Paris Agreement. What about the other way around? Is there is there any discomfort by some countries about the fact that anybody can see the data about their progress? I know that there's tend to be some political sensitivities around the kind of transparency of data just because simply it's transparency. How does that play out within the Earth observation community? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Certainly decades ago, there were uh, deep concerns, particularly amongst you know, defence organisations. Um, there's an um, example of um, what's called um, a, it's a geodetic mission. It was um, it was this thing called a satellite altimeter that I mentioned that measures the surface of the Earth very accurately. Now, if you want to launch um, an intercontinental ballistic missile, you need to know the gravity field, and that's closely related to the surface of the Earth very accurately. And this this satellite mission called GSAT was um, owned by the U.S. Defense, and they did not want this geodetic mission data to be released for, uh, I think it was possibly something like a decade, actually, um, because, you know, it, it was it was very useful for mapping the gravity field. So there are cases like that, but I think by and large, they are, as far as I know, mainly historic now, because most space agencies around the world make their data available at some point, you know, perhaps after a delay, perhaps after six months, but they... And, and so it's just a reality of life now. And, you know, I'm sure there are certain nations and certain situations where, you know, they, they prefer that, that those data, that image or whatever it not to be available, but it is. I wonder if we could explore a little bit about the, the kind of implication of Earth observation in terms of policy and perhaps particularly related to COP and things. You talk in your paper really interestingly about both greenhouse gas verification and, and also about weather. How does being able to measure that greenhouse, well, there are two things about the greenhouse gases, aren't there? The one is that how, how do we take the data that we've measured from that and how do we use it to translate into policy sensibly? And I suppose the other thing is, I was intrigued to see that you actually say it's very difficult using the satellite technology to distinguish between what is a natural CO2 emission and, a, and an Anthropocene one, a, a man-made one. Um, so I suppose that refers back a bit, Marion, doesn't it, to your point about verification and, and, and understanding and explaining and, and, and getting under the skin of the data. But, but what what is the sort of policy implication of the work that you're doing and colleagues in the EO movement are doing? I think it's probably um, really very, very, very different um, across a, a whole range of possibilities. Um, as you know, we have a number of global conventions. We have um, the Sustainable Development Goals. We have Biodiversity Conventions and so on, which are setting targets. Um, and so you can imagine naturally that we have to report against those targets so Earth observation is effectively one piece of evidence to allow us to report against targets which have been set and which we've accepted um, in the context of, for instance, um, UK regulations around uh, water quality and so on, uh, which originally have stemmed from Europe in the Water Framework Directive and things like this. We have to report again on an annual basis about water quality generally. So again, it's feeding into both, uh, if you like, regulation and management. And that would be my kind of take it, it, with two examples. One, a, a kind of high level on things like sustainable development goals. Jonathan mentioned that the, in the Amazonian forest, looking at our satellite images, we can see where there's perhaps uh, illegal logging and so on. Uh, you can begin to detect those types of changes. That might mean 
that a, a government or a local authority or a council or however it might be constructed could actually begin to take action. So we can feed in in a variety of, of different ways. Vital to be able to give that verifiable neutral information neutral back to the global community to explain exactly what's happening because the data itself is not, you know, <laughs> it's not political, it's just data, it's evidence you've gathered from, from the satellite. So I would have thought that has a really key role in in perhaps feeding this back in a way for some of these issues might be very, very sensitive to the countries concerned where you're having to, to share information about things like illegal logging or failure to, to act. I think, I think that's change. very true. I, I think the one thing that we do tend to do very carefully with this is we will keep, if you like, something that's called the metadata, which effectively describes how we have processed the data through to the stage where we have, if you like, drawn the inference or offered the evidence. Um, and so that is also something that can be looked at and should be looked at in the context of um, making decisions, understanding how the data have been processed. It does, I'm curious about the time it takes. So you've got, you've got obviously a lot of data processing, you've got to collect the data. How long does it take to be able to feed this information back, especially the policy relevant information? Well, the space agencies and weather forecasting, so there's an organisation called UMETSAT, that's the European Meteorological Satellite Programme that works with European Space Agency for weather monitoring. And they have services called real-time and near-real-time. So, you know, you'll have a satellite that's, I don't know, doing something like 14 orbits of the Earth every day. And those data are being transmitted to Earth in real-time, you know, on a daily basis. And um, you can have, you can use those those information on a daily basis, you know, like uh, within hours of that observation being made. And then you you get uh, what are called, in the jargon, higher level products, more processed, more sophisticated products, which might be, let's say, I don't know, a gridded data set or a map of uh, deforestation or afforestation or whatever it is. And, 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 but that will be, you know, not, not real time. And that will, you know, could take weeks, months, if it's an annual time series you're interested in, you know, you have to wait a year for the data to be collected. Uh, I mean, you know, as, as another example in related policy, I mean, the European Union has a, a reforestation program to in part offset for carbon emissions that, you know, that are locked into economies across the EU. Um, but, you know, it's very hard to independently assess whether they're really planting as many trees as they say there are in the right places and all that sort of thing. So you're just doing a bit of checking up on some of oh, well, the commitments. That's, oh, that's one aspect of it. But I mean, the other thing which we touched on in, in your questions of what is Earth observation is that it's also um, a, an absolutely vital way of determining, you know, are the actions we're taking, are the policies that we're trying to implement uh, doing the things we hope they will? Yeah. And I suppose if you're collecting data so frequently, then you can see, you can actually monitor those changes, can't you? It's not just whether people are planting the trees, but you can actually see the changes that are happening. You talked about real time, though, Jonathan. Is that useful when it comes to things like warning systems for flooding? Because, you know, you're yes, able to collect course. huge amounts of information about what's happening with, with water movements, aren't you, across the planet? Real time and near real time data are mainly used for things like um, uh, what are called operational analyses. So weather forecasting for long term forecasts for things like industrial farming and, you know, all, all kinds of applications, flooding, natural hazards, that sort of thing. Less for, if you like, the kind of climate monitoring type activity. That's really important, actually, because that's the part of the impacts of climate change and kind of being able to adapt and respond to them and reduce reduce the damage. So that, that's actually quite important to recognize. Um, I have a question, actually, about the increasing sophistication of Earth observation. 
Um, and, you know, you mentioned time series. Obviously, what's lucky is that we do actually have data that spans even back 50 years that's relevant to climate because we can look, for example, at some forest based data, I guess, that's from a long time ago. But I assume that because of the improvement in technology, we can tell a lot more about, for example, the carbon content um, or a lot more detail about forests with today's satellites than we could with the older satellites. So how do you sort of in that comparison, if you want to compare the Amazon today that you see to the Amazon then in a more sophisticated way than just land coverage, how do you make that comparison? I, I would, you know, paraphrasing a, the, a quite a complex problem, I would say what you're doing with the new technology is you're just making the error bars, the uncertainties on that observation smaller and smaller. So, you know, we, for example, if, if I go back to my, my favorite instrument, the radio altimeter, you know, it's measuring sea level rise, you know, and, and, and we've had these, these observations actually since 1978, but the orbits were really inaccurate in the 1970s. You know, we didn't have GPS then. Uh, the uncertainty in the orbits, which means how well you can measure sea level, was about 30 centimetres. So not actually not really any use for sea level rise. We've only had the quality of um, data since the early 1990s. And since then, you know, I think I would say the accuracy of our observations has been getting better and better. And that, that's true for many, many of the kinds of things. If you, you're talking about the deforestation, I mean, you know, your visible imagery it shows you the areas that have been cleared, but that doesn't give you necessarily the volume of woody biomass that's been removed, because that's that's a you know area and volume aren't aren't always directly. You can't just say it's so it's a linear relationship necessarily. In 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 a couple of years' time, we um, um, in fact the UK is leading one of these missions called Biomass, which is going to measure the three D structure of the forest canopy. And we'll have much more accurate measurements of the, the actual volume, the, the woody biomass that's being removed as you, you deforest these areas. And so we're just getting, you know, things, our understanding and our accuracy is just getting better and better as the technology improves. So I, I think that's a really interesting question because, again, in the example we were looking at, um, we were using historical data. And you could imagine a situation, I mentioned the word pixel before in terms of you know, part of the image that we we're looking at. Now, the dimension of that pixel in some of these older images was basically 100, one kilometer. Um, more recent satellites, the, the resolution, the size of the square has come down to 300 meters. And even more recently, it's down to 10 meters. So um, in actual fact, there is a, a, a real scientific question about how you stitch together time series where the technology has changed over time. We were fortunate in the situation that we did actually have an overlapping period where the older technology was still running and the new one was running as well. And if you have that overlap, that can give you a very good basis for doing that kind of, if you like, adjusting. And so it's a really interesting technical question. And it's one where you know, there's lots of innovation coming into the different methodologies that people use to allow us to stitch together these long time series. Because from my perspective, certainly, and, and as Jonathan said in one of his earlier replies, we really need the length of time series to begin to be fully confident about the rates of change and estimating the uncertainty in those rates of change. You've both been working in this field for some time. I mean, is it speeding up? I mean, are you aware from the data that you're looking at that the situation is getting worse? I mean, are the sea levels 
rising slightly more quickly than we thought? Or is the, I mean, we talk, you know, you talk about the poster child of climate change, the Arctic. Are those ice caps melting more? Are those horror stories that we read about? Is it, is it proof? Is it in the evidence in the data that you're seeing? I've, I've been working on polar remote sensing, polar oath observation for about 35 years. And um, yeah, I, I think every, everywhere you look, not just the poles, everywhere you look, things, the, 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 the sort of signs that you expect from a warming planet are amplified and um, accelerating, particularly, particularly in the Arctic where I've done a lot of work. Um, there's something, it's called polar amplification. And what that means is that the polar regions, but particularly the Arctic, warms at a rate that's much higher, some, something like two to two and a half times higher than the global average. So for one degree of global warming, the Arctic is gonna warm two to two and a half degrees. And so the signs are just that much more dramatic. You know, permafrost thaw, you know, like uh, villages falling into the ocean because the permafrost has started to melt and um, buckle and ground breaks up. Release of carbon into the atmosphere from permafrost thaw, um, decline in Arctic sea ice um, and glasses around the world declining at um, the acceleration in the decline of glasses around the world. And all of that coincides with an acceleration in sea level rise as well, which which is now being determined as statistically significant. We've now got a long enough record, almost 30 years of data, and we can see the acceleration in sea level rise due to anthropogenic global warming. So we've got the science and we've got the evidence and we've got the data. We do just have to wonder why we don't have the action to go with it, because this is clear scientific evidence you know that there is a significant problem so we the, need to act now don't we the ipcc that's the intergovernmental panel on climate change celebrated in inverted commas its 30th birthday a couple of years ago um so it's been doing these assessment reports you know the assessments of the whole climate system for the best part of 30 years the the message hasn't really changed i think just like i was saying about the technology improving the uncertainties have gone down you know and and some of the signals have got bigger as we were just saying but the message that, you know, we're interfering with the climate system in a way that we don't really understand and, and that is almost certainly going to be extremely damaging for most people on the planet hasn't changed in 30 years. And one of the things that I think, I you know, makes me particularly sad and, and you know, I'm, I'm of a generation where I'm perhaps more responsible than many, is that in the last 30 years, um, we have emitted more than half of the total CO2 in, since the Industrial Revolution since 1850. So if we had acted 30 years ago, if we'd, if we'd actually listened to the science, as, as Greta would say, we wouldn't be in this really, really awful position that we're in now, where, you know, we are really racing against the clock. I think the challenge in some senses is that there's probably at this point in time, a relatively small percentage of the global population who are really living with the effects of climate change, like sea level rise. Uh, and we hear, you know, in the press about um, folks in atolls and, and small islands and so on. And then in, you know, a very small number of years, their homes will be gone. But a large part of us probably are still quite cushioned. So the evidence is there. The science is sound and has been, as Jonathan has said, the same message for a long time. But it's this um, combination of both political will and societal will 
an individual will that all needs to come together. I couldn't have put it better myself. You're absolutely right. And I think that's probably why these podcasts are so important, because what we, we're evidencing through the climate papers and through the COP universities network is scientists and thinkers and great minds and great researchers coming together in a coalition in a way that they haven't done before, have they, Lisa? This is a unique collaboration of universities. And perhaps with enough voices, with enough expertise, we might be able to put the right kind of pressure on the policymakers and the government actors to really genuinely take action going forward. Yeah, and I think building on that, that Marion also mentioned the personal. I think both Jonathan and Marion have got suggestions, obviously, through this podcast of careers that people can take up. They're going to help. I mean, the, I've I've heard the kind of some on the ground ecologists coupled with um, physicists and mathematicians that are needed all around the world to help with this. And so I hope some of those people have been listening and have chosen the appropriate masters. PhD, undergraduate programs accordingly. Ever the university recruiter. <laughs> yeah, I just thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating. And I would recommend to listeners that they read the policy brief because although it's, it is rocket science, but it's very easy to read. It's really easy to get your head around and you've illuminated and enlightened it so much for us all. So hugely grateful to you, Jonathan and Marion, for being guests on the podcast today. Thank you so much. And thank you for the positive notes that you put forward in the briefing as well. And the, the reinforcement for international collaboration and the EU Copernicus program and all of those great initiatives, which are still exemplars of the best minds working together across state barriers and national barriers. And that's such an encouraging thing to say. So Marion and Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for having us. Yeah, great to see you. And Elisa, as always, thank you. And uh, thanks to Jim, our producer. And you've been listening to The Climate Papers. Do subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your normal podcast via your app, or you can visit the COP University's network website, the Grantham Institute website, or planetpod.com. And be sure to tweet us at planetpod or at Grantham IC um, and tell us your thoughts about The Climate Papers. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. 